And now, more tips with your host, Rebecca, on lifestyle improvement. Remember that in our program, we present our opinion and the opinion of our guest, and is not to be interpreted as medical advice. Hello, and welcome to our program, Lifestyle Improvement. This is your host, Rebecca. Today, we have with us Dr. Jed Baker. Dr. Baker is a psychologist and the director of the Social Skills Training Project a private organization serving individuals with autism and social communication difficulties. He's also in the professional advisory board of Autism Today and several other autism organizations. He's an international instructor on the subject of social skills training and managing of challenging behaviors. Dr. Baker has been featured on ABC World News, Nightline CBS, and the Discovery Health Channel. He's an award-winning author of nine books, among them is the book titled, No More Meltdowns, Positive Strategies for Managing and Preventing Out-of-Control Behaviors. Thank you so much for coming to join us today, Dr. Baker. Thank you for having me, Rebecca. In your book, No More Meltdowns, you state, and I quote, when challenging behaviors continue despite consistently enforcing rules, it does not matter anymore whether the behavior was intentional. We need to understand how to alter the triggers to those behaviors and or teach better ways to cope with those triggers, end of quote. You are recognized as a national leader on social skills training, and you have written several books on that. What made you decide to write a book of this kind? Did you feel that there was a need for a book that addressed dealing with difficult behaviors in an innovative way? Well, this is a simple answer. I, I had two children <laughs> of my own. <laughs> and uh, I realized, you know, this is not an easy task to be a parent. And so I've been working in the field with kids with autism and other challenging behaviors for many, many years. And I have my own kids and realized parenting is a 24-7 endeavor. And it would be good to have a quick guide for how to maybe prevent repeat problems, things that you start to see coming up again and again. Um, for, and, and part of that I recognized in myself as a psychologist was like, how do I manage myself first? Um, so parents need to think about, uh, uh, you know, how, how, how they can get themselves in the right place to then be in the right frame of mind to, to help uh, manage difficult behaviors that all kids have, not just kids with disabilities. So why don't we start with that? What is a meltdown and why do kids have meltdowns? Um, so, and I have a broad answer to that. Meltdowns for me are really just emotional reactions that aren't particularly well thought out or logical, ne not necessarily aimed at solving a problem. They're, they're emotional reactions. And so um, one way to look at it is to use a term that Daniel Goleman in his work on emotional intelligence uses. He, he calls them emotional hijackings. So the sort of older, more reptilian part of our brain that controls our emotional functioning kind of hijacks the rest of the brain when we're when we're sufficiently threatened, you know, so we don't get what we want or we're really frustrated with an activity. Um, we, we sort of shut down that logic brain and we go into sort of fight, flight or freeze mode, that more sort of survival mode, emotional reaction. Um, and that, you know, we all have that ability and it's a good thing to have. Like if a car is coming to hit us, 
we don't really want to have a thoughtful response. Ooh, let's see. I should probably turn 38 degrees and the wind is coming. We just want to get out of there. We just want to have an emotional reaction that keeps us safe. The problem is we have those alarm reactions to lots of things when it's not necessarily a true alarm and we become sort of emotionally driven and stop using logic at that point. Um, now, why do kids have more of them sometimes than adults? I mean, all of us can have it, adults too. But kids don't have necessarily yet a, a, a fully formed forebrain, that area of the brain that's really involved with problem solving, planning, and thinking. That's the state of, of being a little kid. It, it takes time to develop some self-control and some problem-solving skills, right? Then on top of that, if you also have a youngster who – um, has an autism spectrum disorder, has sensory issues, has attentional issues, has severe anxiety, mood issues, then you're, you're also uh, have a youngster who might be prone to more emotional hijackings. They might have reasons to be threatened more often. Kid with autism may have overwhelming sensory um, experiences and feel threatened by their environment. They might have learning disabilities and feel threatened in the classroom that somebody's going to think they're not smart if they, uh, or that they're going to be humiliated in front of their peers. They may have um, attentional issues that make it hard for them to maintain self-control. So all of those ingredients go into a greater likelihood of having an emotional reaction and not a well-thought-out, skill-based, problem-solving reaction to a situation. So it makes them more vulnerable. Uh, yeah, no doubt. Yeah, and, mm -hmm. and let me just say you can have different kinds of meltdowns. You could, they're all sort of hijackings of emotions, but you can have sort of outward anger frustration where you see kids really sort of in terms of fight, flight or fright, you see the sort of fight part where they can say aggressive things or be aggressive. Um, so we, we call that anger, right? Anger, frustration. But you could also have like an inward meltdown where people just shut down with anxiety and depression um, where they kind of hide out to the coast is clear. You know, that's maybe the uh, the fight, flight or free. That's the the, uh, the freeze or the or the uh, fleeing the situation, avoid the situation. That's the anxiety part. Great. Thank you so much, Dr. Baker. Now, your model starts with accepting your child, which makes total sense to me because that is so important. So why do you think this is the first step that a caregiver or a parent should start with? You know, it's about managing oneself first as a caregiver. And there are certain attitudes that um, as a caregiver, whether you're a parent or a professional for that matter, working with uh, with kids or, or clients, there are certain attitudes that are associated with a better outcome. Um, and they have to do with sort of accepting who that uh, – who that child is, but let me let me maybe give you greater detail on what those attitudes are that are associated with better outcomes. It, it's it's how we think about challenging moments and challenging behaviors. So um, there's a term called attributional style, and that refers to how we understand uh, a particular event. In this case, a difficult behavior that a child is showing. And there's some very interesting research that when we understand something as a temporary problem, not a stable problem, so your kid is acting out, melting down because they couldn't have a candy bar. You know, um, If we see that as a temporary issue and not a stable issue, that gives us hope. And hope is associated with better outcome. If you see it as a specific issue, this kid doesn't understand how to wait yet or accept no, as opposed to a global issue, it's a bad kid. 
I got a bad kid, which is really the opposite of acceptance, then we have worse outcome. So we have to think about it as this is a specific issue. This kid doesn't have the skill yet. This is your host, Rebecca, and now we will take a short break and we will be right back with more ideas on lifestyle improvement. As a caregiver, you spend your days caring for the needs of someone else. But what are you doing to help yourself? In our Caregiver Survival 101 workshop, we teach you the self-help skills that will empower you to be healthier and more productive. Do you feel tired, overwhelmed, have difficulty sleeping? Do you feel isolated? All this could be signs of caregiver stress. Chronic stress can impact your health adversely and ultimately cause irreversible and unwanted physical problems. Take a step towards your own personal care. A healthy caregiver is a better caregiver. You owe it to yourself and your loved ones to do what is needed to stay healthy today. Go to www.caregiversurvival101.com. That again is www.caregiversurvival101.com. And discover how we can help you help yourself. Or call 877-957-7387, extension 101. That again is 877 877- 957-7387 extension 101. Caregiver Survival 101. Because care starts with you. There's some very interesting research that when we understand something as a temporary problem, not a stable problem. So your kid is acting out, melting down because they couldn't have a candy bar. You know, um, if we see that as a temporary issue and not a stable issue, that gives us hope. And hope is associated with better outcome. If you see it as a specific issue, this kid doesn't understand how to wait yet or accept no, as opposed to a global issue. It's a bad kid. I got a bad kid, which is really the opposite of acceptance. Then we have worse outcome. So we have to think about it as this is a specific issue. This kid doesn't have the skill yet. So the first two issues are it's temporary, not stable. It's a specific issue, not a global character flaw. And the third one is to not blame other people, to not have what we call an internal attribution, but we make an external attribution. What we mean by that when we say internal is we play the blame game. It's the kid's fault. He's doing it on purpose. It's the teacher's fault for giving us this stupid homework. It's the parent's fault for not raising their kid properly. It's the whatever it is, you know, and the kid blames everybody else. That blame game doesn't get us anywhere. When we see it as an external issue, and what do we mean by that? There's a gap between the demands we're placing on a kid and their ability to cope with that in the moment. When we see it like that, then we have something we can work on. We can close that gap. We can alter the demands. Like let's say it's a homework assignment. We can modify, uh, you know, make it easier to do the homework assignment, or we can build that kid's skill level up to be able to accept or ask for help rather than refuse to do it. So we can close that gap between the demands and their and their coping skills rather than play that blame game. Because, you know, sometimes when it rains, um, it's nobody's fault. And But we can get an umbrella uh-huh. and, and we can take cover uh, until it stops raining, but it's nobody's fault. That kind of attributional style, we, we know the data shows that it leads to better outcome because when people are hopeful, they do the things they need to do. But if they start blaming their kid, um, if they start feeling like this is a forever problem, 
then we end up not doing the things we need to do to to improve. I so agree with you. And, and I think that piece of the acceptance is so powerful. And you mentioned it, but I also go back to the accepting to some degree yourself before you move into that place. And two things are interesting to me there. Number one, I think that caregivers are as much part of the environment as any other sensory factor outside of themselves. Yeah, absolutely. And the number two piece, it does start with personal acceptance and acceptance of the child. And acceptance being, to me, just a sense that brings in positivism with it anyway. So before you start the process, you're already kind of setting up a framework, right? Well, that's right. I mean, emotions are contagious in some ways. So if we have, if we're feeling not good as a parent or as a teacher for that matter, um, we're maybe more likely to take things personally and not see it as a, as a skill deficit that could be fixed for that youngster, but rather as, oh, this person is disrespecting me. Um, and, and and begin to play the blame game kind of thing and, and get worked up. I'm a huge um, fan of basketball. And the reason I'm saying this is relevant here is if I play two hours of basketball during the day and I come home and my daughter falls on the floor because she's having a fit about math homework, which has happened, <laughs> I'm in a pretty good mood. I smile. I see what's going on. And... I say, listen, I know you hate math. We'll do it together. Let me show you. And we get through it. But if I've done a workshop somewhere and I've been on an airplane and I come home exhausted and my wife has left me with the task of helping my daughter with homework and now she falls on the floor and I'm exhausted, (laughs) I begin to, well, I'm not having this. You know what? If I'm helping you with homework, you got to do your part. And I start to get agitated. And that anger on my part is contagious. And so it escalates her behavior. So what we're saying really is we have to put on our own oxygen mask before we put on, you know, the oxygen mask of our kids. We have to get ourselves. What I'm saying is we have to see our shrink. We do our exercise. We do whatever it is to feel good. And that's going to give us a greater capacity to be able to tolerate these moments with our kids so that we don't get emotionally hijacked, but we have a thoughtful intellectual response. How can I be in another place tomorrow? Even if I can't fix this today, how can I be in a better place tomorrow, next week? And use our intellect, not our emotional limbic system, reptilian brain that feels threatened, that escalates things with kids. So true. And that applies to caregivers at home. That applies to parents. That applies to the classroom and teachers and how when they have to deal with difficult situations, they have to go to that same exact place as well. One one word people use to describe this nowadays is mindful parenting. Mm -hmm. And all that means is you're behaving with awareness of what you're doing. You're not just having an emotional reaction. You're you're observing yourself, you accept the fact that you might be angry and frustrated with your kid or your student or whatnot, uh, but you have a thoughtful response to it. We use our intellect. So what do you suggest that caregivers or parents or teachers look for when trying to figure out what happened or why a child or student had a meltdown? Sure. So step one we've talked about, we got to get ourselves in the right frame of mind What you're talking about in some ways is step three. There's a missing step a little bit. Uh, Step three is really understanding why repeat problem occurs. You know, if you keep having the same thing, 
going on and on. You really want to understand what sets this child off. And um, I try to lay out in my book seven very common categories of triggers, not told to me by a Bernie Bush uh, and, and put on stone tablets, but these are the categories I see over and over and over again that might trigger uh, a meltdown. Um, and so we can do some we can do some detective work to try to figure out what those triggers are. It's really helpful when you're doing that detective work uh, to be able to have an idea of what the triggers could be because you're usually paying attention to a difficult behavior after it happens. You didn't anticipate it always. So after it happens, you're going back in time and saying, huh, why did this happen? That's the most important question we can ask when you have a repeat problem. Why did this happen? What triggered it? And so I lay out uh, things like, uh, it could be an internal biological issue. So when kids don't feel well, they're going to have greater problems across the board. Everywhere they go, they're having more problems this particular day or in the last couple of days. Are they hungry? Are they tired? Are they sick? It could it be an internal psychological issue, such as the parents are getting divorced or there's grief. And so wherever this kid goes, they're having more challenges. Okay? Another trigger could be sensory. We could have a youngster who's um, very easily overwhelmed by too much stimulation. So we look in the environment. Is this partly why the kid had the meltdown? There was just too much stimulation um, or the opposite, understimulation. Kids with severe ADHD can't just sit and listen for hours. They're going to need to have some uh, stimulating uh, environments where they can get up, move around, uh, be entertained. And without that, you're going to see some acting out behavior. The, another common trigger is lack of structure. And what I mean by that is the rules weren't clear. Uh, for a lot of our kids on the spectrum, it means there aren't enough visual supports. Uh, a nice example of this is what recess looks like to lots of our kids. Um, recess is one of these things where if it's not – if you're not like reading the unwritten rules, you're not sure how to get into an activity or even what the activity is. Uh, if you imagine what an amusement park looks like, that's a much more visually supported environment. Amusement parks have signs where all the activities are. They have signs of where you have to stand to get into the activity with instructions for how tall you need to be and whatnot. We can do that at recess sometimes where we can create more opportunities. We can have board games for kids who aren't athletic and we can also have signs and posters of how to uh, get into the game. That's just the kind of thing. Now, another version of that at home, lack of visual supports, is there's no schedule. So a kid has a meltdown when you say it's time to get off the video game and time to come to dinner, and he freaks out. But if there was a schedule in place that said this is when we have dinner, but then you get to go back and play a certain amount of video game, it's easier to leave a video game if you know when you can go back, if there's a clear structure. So lack of visual uh, schedules, lack of visual supports, lack of structure can be a trigger. A demanding task can be a trigger. So this could be anything like homework, classwork, or chores in the home, or even just getting ready in the morning to go to school. Any demand, take the dog out. Any demand can be uh, a trigger if a, if a youngster doesn't have the skills to handle it uh, uh, or, or have the faith or confidence that they can do it successfully. Another one is a disappointment where they didn't get something they wanted. They either had to wait too long for it or they couldn't have it at all. Like uh, a young child who wants a mature rated video game and mom says, mm -mm, not ready yet. Um, another one would be not getting the attention you want. 
So the youngster acts out when mom or dad is giving their sibling the attention and they're not getting the attention they want. Um, and so we have funny. kids. Yeah. <laughs> um, and there's lots of ways where kids aren't always getting the attention they want. Uh, there's their kids who might just crave that and they become class clowns and get out of control in other ways. Uh, threats to self-esteem. Uh, this is a common one for some of our kids who tend to have some inflexibility, can be very perfectionistic. And so threats to self-esteem include things like losing a game, not being first, being corrected or criticized. And we see this with both kids. When they make a mistake, they freak out. Or even with our adults who maybe get critical feedback from an employer and, and freak out, have a hard time accepting that. Um, teasing is another sort of threat to self-esteem. So all those can be triggers. We want to know what the trigger is to these difficult situations. And the way we do that is when you have a repeat problem behavior, we're asking parents to keep track of sort of the before, during, and after of that behavioral challenge. We used to ask parents to keep a little diary of that, but now there are apps that do this for you. Uh, no More Meltdowns, um, actually there's an app that allows you on your mobile phone to keep track of a problem behavior. Wow. So like if a kid is scratching and pinching and yelling and this happens frequently, it'll ask you what the trigger was. It'll ask you what happened afterwards. Yeah. It stores all that data and you can upload it to a website called uh, simtrend.com. This is very unique. Uh, yeah. Well, there are other apps that do things like this, but this is a relatively inexpensive one. I think it's a about $11 in the, if you go to the Apple app store and you click on no more meltdowns, you'll find that app. If you're a droid user, you'd have to go to uh, simtrend.com to download it. And simtrend is S-Y-M-T-R-E-N-D.com, simtrend.com. Um, anyway, the point is it'll analyze it for you. It'll say, hey, look, during this period of time, this is the trigger. When you know what the trigger is, now you can put together a better behavior plan because the trigger is ripe with all the information you need to how do we not do this again? How do we go about this situation differently or how do we teach skills to prepare a kid? Exactly. Now, you mentioned step two, that we skipped yeah. step two. <laughs> well, well, you know, step two is when you really don't know what the trigger is. Mm -hmm. you, you've had a meltdown in the moment. You're You're – in the middle of a store or wherever you are, your kid is melting down, having a major emotional, disruptive, challenging moment, and you don't even know why it happened. You didn't prepare for it. It's too late to prepare for it because it's already happening. Um, how do you put out the fire? How do you calm the storm? And so my emergency tool for these like – for these, and, and it's not perfect because it is a crisis – and crises don't have perfect solutions. So understand this is not going to work every time. But my best tool very often is uh, distraction. Distraction, how do I get my youngster's hijacked brain back to the logic brain? And I'm not going to have a logical argument with them right now because the, the forebrain's not there. I can't just talk to them. They're more like a reptile at that moment. I have to calm them, soothe them. So I think of three categories of ways to help a youngster get distracted, soothed, regulated, and then later we can talk about how to solve the problem. Remember that in our program we present our opinion and the opinion of our guest and it's not to be interpreted as medical advice.
As a caregiver, you spend your days caring for the needs of someone else. But what are you doing to help yourself? In our Caregiver Survival 101 workshops, we teach you the self-help skills that will empower you to be healthier and more productive. Do you feel tired, overwhelmed, have difficulty sleeping? Do you feel isolated? All these could be signs of caregiver stress. Chronic stress can impact your health adversely and ultimately cause irreversible, unwanted physical problems. Take a step towards your own personal care. A healthy caregiver is a better caregiver. You owe it to yourself and your loved ones to do what is needed to stay healthy today. Go to www.caregiversurvival101.com that Again, is www.caregiversurvival101.com and discover how we can help you help yourself. Caregiversurvival101.com or call 877-957-7387. That again is 877-957-7387. was a way to help your struggling child perform better academically. Would you pick up the phone and call? Lysol Improvement Occupational Therapy Services in Puyallup, Washington supports wellness and optimal educational performance. Instead of just reteaching information, we endeavor to identify the possible root causes for your child's learning difficulties. We offer targeted testing to assist in the creation of an individualized plan and provide you with the brain training tools that can help improve academic Academic performance. Visit our website at www.lifestyleimprovement.com or give us a call today at 877-957-7387, extension 101. That again is 877-957-7387, extension 101, for an initial free phone consultation. Lifestyle Improvement Occupational Therapy. We're ready to partner with parents and to help your child succeed. Lifestyle Improvement Radio is now online. Listen to our interviews at your convenience by going to www.lifestyleimprovementradio.com. If you like what you hear and would like to hear more about a specific subject, send us an email to producer at lifestyleimprovement.com and let us know what you think. Support our sponsors and let them know you heard about them at Lifestyle Improvement. Thank you so much for joining us here today on Lifestyle Improvement for part one of our interview with Dr. Jed Baker. Dr. Baker is a psychologist and the director of the Social Skills Training Project, a private organization serving individuals with autism and social communication difficulties. He's on the professional advisory board of Autism Today and several other autism organizations. He's an international instructor on the subject of social skills training and managing of challenging behaviors. He's an award-winning author of nine books. Among them is the book titled, No More Meltdowns, Positive Strategies for Managing and Preventing Out-of-Control Behaviors. Thank you for tuning in to Lifestyle Improvement today. Don't forget to join us again next Sunday morning from 7.30 to 8 for part two of our interview with Dr. Jed Baker.